Hi, everybody. My name is Charles. I'm one of the pastors on the teaching team. Greetings to those of you who are here and those of you joining us by video in Traditions, Gospel Fusion, downtown Fitchburg. Special shout out to those of you who are joining us uh, watching online and those of you who are listening to our podcast. To the Chinese speakers, Tishon Jeme Pingan, to the Spanish speakers, Es un gusto de nos aquí con nosotros. Now, this Sunday, we are continuing our series called Live This Book. And we are systematically working our way through the Bible all the way to the May of next year. And the big idea of this series is that the Bible is a single story broken into seven movements. God's plan for humanity, the humans rebel, God chooses a people, God's people rebel, Jesus the king, the empowered church, and God's mission accomplished. Now, we spend four Sundays on God's plan for humanity. Right? Four Sundays in which we talk about our God, the creator God, the one true God is actually a personal God who created the universe to be his home. And then he created his family. He created his children, that's the humans. And he wanted to empower the humans to run the world on his behalf, to, to take care of the world. But the humans rebel. The humans basically say to God, hey, thanks for the beautiful world, but we'll take it from here. And so the Bible defines sin, that sin at its core is a, a declaration of human independence. It's humans saying to God, hey, kudos to you for making this world, but we get to run this world. We decide what is good, what is evil. We decide what harms life and what prospers life. And the consequences of that decision has been absolutely catastrophic. First of all, humans, we died spiritually. We're cut off from God. And the second, our relationship with the created order, that's messed up. And the created order now is struggling and suffering because of human rebellion. And then our relationship with each other is damaged. And so we live in a human-dominated world that is full of violence and murder and, and oppression and vengeance, sexual exploitation. We're divided into warring tribes. Go killing each other, slaughtering each other. That's the world we live in. And all of this is in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Okay? And then we get to Genesis chapter 12. And everything changes. Genesis 12 is the pivot of the entire story of the Bible. Genesis chapter 12 is when God starts proactively to restore the world to his original vision. Genesis 12 is where God lays out his plan. The plan begins by God choosing a people. And today we're starting this new section. God choosing a people. God chooses a people. And we're going to start by looking at the first three verses of Genesis chapter 12. Just three verses. And we're going to dive in deep on these three verses. And we're going to see what God's up to. How is he going to fix this? So we're going to dive in deep. Here we go. Here's Genesis 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. Yahweh. Okay. When you see the word LORD in all caps in your English Bible, that marks God's personal name, Yahweh. Yahweh has said to Abraham, okay, it says Abram, I know. He gets his name changed to Abraham in chapter 17. But most people are familiar with Abraham, not with Abram. So I'm just going to say Abraham all the way through, okay, just to make it easier. Okay, so Yahweh has said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All right, 
let's, let's look at this carefully. The first thing we should notice is that two related words dominate these three verses. The Hebrew verb barach, uh, verb meaning to bless, and the Hebrew noun baracha, meaning blessing. Now, the idea of blessing in the ancient world is, is about the power to prosper life to give life vitality and dynamism. It's about life that's teeming and with creativity and energy. Right? That's blessing in the ancient world. And what you notice is that these words, they show five times in a span of really just two verses. Right? It's concentrated blessing. This concentration tells the readers that this section, these verses are an intentional response to Genesis chapter 3. If you were here last week, you heard Pastor Chris talk about Genesis chapter 3, and if you didn't, catch it online. It's great talk, okay? But in that chapter, Chris talked about how the world was cursed, okay? Genesis 3, God, there's cursing of this world, and then in response in Genesis 12, there is now blessing for the world. Genesis 12 is an intentional response to the problem of this world. Here's the problem this is the solution. Okay, well, how is this the solution? Well, God talks to a guy named Abraham, and he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to take your descendants and form them into a kingdom. Now, at this point in time, Abraham is about 75 years old, and he has no kids. So that's a bit of a challenge right there. Okay. So that's going to be one of the major dramatic points if you, if you read the, the stories of Abraham. Now, here's the thing, though. God says, I'm going to take this nation. I'm going to turn them into a blessing. Now, this phrase right here has very often been understood as saying that the people of God are called to love others and serve others in their community. Okay. Now, let me just be really clear about this. Yes, we are absolutely called to serve and love those in our community. But that is not what this phrase is talking about in this passage. Okay? Instead, what does it mean to be a blessing is defined by verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all people on earth will be blessed through you. Let me see if I can make this clear. All right, okay. So I'm going to draw, okay. So here's God. And then here's Abraham. I'm going to call him Abe because Abraham is really long to write. And uh, he says, God says to Abraham, I'm going to turn you into a great nation. So your descendants, right, you could have kids, and all of this will become a nation a people, a kingdom. And God says, I'm going to bless you. All good so far? Okay. This people are to be a blessing. How? Next verse. Now, I will bless those who bless you. They're going to be people. They, um, they're going to bless the people of God. You see that? Right? Now, what does it mean to bless the people of God? Scholars say that to, to bless the people of God is to, is to recognize and affirm what God is doing with his people. And just think about it this way. Like, okay, so, so you have some people who interact with, with God's people, and they go, wow, 
I really like what God is doing with you. I see what God's doing in your community. I'm amazed by it. I think it's great. More power to you. May God bless you further. Okay? These are people who are blessing God's people. And what does it say? God will then bless them. You see that? All good so far? Okay. Well, then, there's the other group of people. I'm going to do something really cool. I'm never, I don't think we've ever tried this here at Blackhawk. I'm going to change the color of the pen. Live, on stage, intentionally. <laughs> okay. All right. So we're going to have people... Whoever curses you, I will curse. So we, what you're going to have is, is a group of people, and they're, they're going to curse the people of God. Now, now, here in English, it's a bit of a problem because we, we think the word curse shows up twice. But in Hebrew, it's actually two different verbs. These are different verbs. Um, this one, the, whoever curses you, this curse actually is kalal, it has a more general meaning. It means to, to show disdain for, or to, to think very little of. So you're talking about a people who encounter the people of God, and they're like, eh. Or they're like, you're not anything. We don't recognize you as people of God. Okay? And what will God do with them? God will curse them. This verb... It's not kalal, it's arar. That's the curse in Genesis chapter 3. It means God consigns them to death. That's the plan. You see it. Here's how it works. In a world broken by human rebellion, in which God's children, they, they, they're, they're messing up the world, they're, they're hurting each other, the loving father, God says, I need to find a way to bring them back. I need to woo them back to me. And so what God does is he says, okay, I'm going to create a kingdom from scratch, a kingdom that's in relationship with me, one which I'm blessing, which means people in here, they know God and they love God and God knows them and God loves them and they love each other. It is a nation of righteousness and peace and wholeness filled with a powerful life flourishing. And in a dark and corrupt and broken world, this nation is going to shine like a city on a hill. And pilgrims from all around the world, they're going to come. They're going to come and go, tell us about your God. How are you guys doing this? It's amazing what you're doing. And these people, God will bless them. He will give them the power for life. And there will be those, though, who look at this kingdom and says, eh, not interested and it's clear that they don't want what God has to offer. That's the plan, folks. That's the plan. So for this plan to work, the people of God need to do two things. Okay? Need to do, need to do two things. Number one, God's people are to be a missional people. That makes sense, right? God's people have a mission in this world, right? They exist for the sake of the world. Now, we're going to look a little bit 
further down the story. And we're going to find out that at the end of the story, Christ followers, the church, we are God's people today. And it's the same plan. It's the same mission. We exist for the world. Now, for that to work, for us to accomplish a mission, we need to do two things. Number one, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. In the world, but not of the world. Go back to chapter 12, verse 1. Okay. God tells Abraham to do two things. One, he tells him, go to the, oh, hey, let me switch the color back. How's that? That was pretty amazing, right? <laughs> go. Who says you can't teach old dog new tricks, right? I mean, seriously, right? Go, from, go to the land I will show you. That's the first thing God tells them. It's not just any old land. It's not just go someplace and we'll start the kingdom. No, no, no. Go to the land I will show you. It's a very specific piece of land. What land and why there? I used to be the pastor of Blackhawk Chinese Ministry here. And I had the privilege of working with many, many visiting scholars from China. They travel to UW and spend time here. And, uh, and when I work with them and they, they ask questions about Christianity, one of the most popular questions they ask is, why didn't God choose the Chinese people? Yeah, they ask that question, right? Yeah, they ask that question. And, and this, is how I, this is how I answer them. I said, have you looked at geography? This is China. That's Siberia. Here's the, the Gobi Desert. Here's the Himalayas. Here is tropical rainforest, and here's the Pacific Ocean. God's people can't go there because they're completely isolated from the rest of the world. You can't go there. Why? Because an essential feature of God's people is they are in the world. Other nations, other tribes need to intersect with it, interact with it, so that they can bless or curse. So, God's people cannot be planted here. And so rather, God tells Abraham to go to an entirely different piece of land. He tells him to go to the land of Canaan. Or today we call him Palestine. It's not that great a piece of land, folks. Inconsistent water supply. Very difficult to defend. Why there? Because it is in the middle of the three ancient civilizations, the Greeks, the Mesopotamian, and the Egyptians, smack dab in the middle. This is the trade route, folks. This is where people, migrants, caravans, diplomats, they go through this area and they interact with people of God. And they go, wow, hey, guess what? I'm going to tell you the news about this amazing country I just walked through. It is people who worship one God, which is a revolutionary idea back then. It's amazing. God's people are in the land where they're in the world. They intersect with the world. This is who they're called to be. Now today, God's people is no longer bound by geography. We are all over the globe. But the mission is still the same. We are called to live and to work and to love and to play before the world. Now what does that mean? It means a lot of things, but let's start with something very basic. Do people you work with know that you're a Christ follower? Do your family and friends know you're a Christ follower? 
Do your neighbors know you're a Christ follower? You see, to, to live out the function of being the people of God, people need to know that they're interacting with the people of God. Otherwise, it doesn't really work. Now, I said this is basic. I don't mean to imply that's easy. It is actually really hard. In our culture, more and more so, when you mention that you're a Christ follower, people make all kinds of assumptions about you. And so it, it, it gets kind of hard to tell people, right? Like when I'm on a plane and I sit down next to a person, that person clearly wants to talk. Happens. And they look at me and the first question they ask is, so what do you do for a living? And I'm like, oh, darn. <laughs> Why that question? Get to know me first. I'm a funny guy. I'm a really interesting person. Before you go, oh, and, and, and there's that hesitation. I'm like, okay, fine, I'll spit it out. I'm a pastor. And, and here's the thing, though. Most of the time, it works out just fine, okay? Most of the time. Every now and then, just kind of end of the conversation. But most of the time, it works just fine. But, but there is a hesitation. We get it. It's not easy. But this is what we're called to do. We're called to live in the world as the people of God. They need to know that about who we are. In the world. But not of the world. Let's go back to Genesis 12, verse 1. You see, he didn't just call Abraham to go to the land. He also told him to go from your country, your people, and your father's household. God tells Abraham to leave. Okay? You must leave your country, leave your people, leave your family clan. And so at age 75, Abraham immigrates to another country. My dad, at age 52, he brought our family to, from Taiwan to America. Now, I didn't think much about that at the time. I was 10, and I had other issues to worry about. But as I'm now in my 50s, I start to think more about his decision, right? He, he made a decision to go to a country, where, uh, to, to, to go to a land where he doesn't speak the language. He, he made a decision to go to a place where his education background, his work experience, they meant nothing. I mean, in Taiwan, he was a veteran of the Chinese Air Force. He, he, he was an officer in, in charge of radar design and installation. He, ranked, he rose to the rank of major before he, he resigned from the army. Then he, then he was a teacher. He taught electronics and integrated circuits. In America, none of that meant a thing. And so not surprisingly, he struggled. He never understood American culture. He never got in, he, he never had a single friendship with a single white person. Instead, he joined the immigrant Chinese-American Christian community in Southern California, and there he stayed. That's for somebody who immigrates at age 52. As I'm getting older, I think about his decision and what it cost him. And I ask myself sometimes, would I do what he did? I mean, go to a place where I don't speak the language. Go to a place where my education background, my work experience mean nothing. In my 20s, maybe. Sounds like an adventure. Now in my 50s, oh, I don't think so. In my 70s, I'm going to guess, not a chance. Abraham immigrates 
to another country at age 75. He leaves behind everything that's familiar, his country, his land, his people, his family clan, which is their source of protection and security, and he goes to a land that he has never seen before. He doesn't speak the language. He knows no one, and no one knows him. That's bonkers. Not surprisingly, Abraham struggles. He never gets in. He never gets into part of, of, of the Canaanite society. He is a stranger in a strange land. He spends his, his life walking up and down the land of Canaan, tracing the border, building altars everywhere, believing to his dying breath that God has given all this land to him. But then there's that poignant story in Genesis chapter 23 when his beloved wife Sarah dies. and He doesn't have an inch of ground to bury her in. And so Abraham, the supposed owner of all of Canaan, has to go hat in hand to buy land. And if you can read that story through ancient eyes, you'll recognize that the Canaanites rip him off because he's a foreigner. Abraham is the first person in the Bible to be called a Hebrew. The term Hebrew draws from the, from the Akkadian term Habiru, and Habiru is not an ethnic term. It is a sociological term. It is a term referring to people of no status, nomads, petty criminals, people with no social connection, no property, the invisible people. A generation ago in Europe, they would have called, they're called gypsies. In America, decades ago, we used to call them hobos or trams. Habiru is not a nice term. It is an insulting term. Habiru becomes Hebrew. It becomes the term that the people of God bears and wears proudly. Because we, the people of God, are people who intentionally identify as outsiders, as people who are strangers in a strange land. Why? Because God's kingdom is a brand new enterprise. It is not built off of these rebellious human kingdoms. No, it's not an adaptation of some, of some broken human culture. No, it is a brand new thing. It's a brand new kingdom, which means every single person, every one of us is an immigrant into the kingdom of God. Do you understand that? Every single one of us who are Christ followers, we are naturalized citizens in the kingdom of God. And which means we need to turn back from our culture and we need to embrace new narratives a new founding narrative. Like, we need to replace Mayflower with the calling of Abraham. We need to drop the Declaration of Independence and embrace Moses and our escape from Egypt. Drop the Bill of Rights and pick up the Ten Commandments. My mentor, Bruce Walkie, he's an Old Testament scholar. He was writing about Genesis 12, 12 verse 1. He had this to say. He said, Faith demands a ruthless abandonment of the past. Faith demands a ruthless abandonment of the past. Now, abandoning the past does not mean we go and hide somewhere because we're supposed to stay in the world. We don't go hide. We don't, we don't go create a Christian subculture and go hide in there. No, 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 no. What we do instead is we engage with our culture. We love the people around us. We engage the culture, but we're viewing them critically through the lens of the values of Scripture. 
Have you noticed how often we come up here and we say, oh, this is where the Bible is really countercultural? We say that all the time. Why is that? Because that's a defining feature of the people of God. We look at the culture around us, we go, huh, this is where it's different from the Bible. This is where it's different from the Bible. This is where it's different from the Bible. And then what do we do? We consciously embrace the values of the Bible over that of the culture. That's who we are in the world, but not of the world. So obvious next question, how are we supposed to be different? How is the people of God different from our culture? Well, we're going to talk about that for the next eight weeks. We have eight Sundays coming up that'll tell us about what it means to be the people of God. Next week, Pastor Matt is going to talk about covenant. It's one of the most important concepts in the Bible. And he's going to talk about how, what that means for us. Prayer. Okay. If you've been around churches at all, you know that you're supposed to pray, okay? So think of a no-duh. But here's the thing. When you read the Bible as a story, it has a way of changing familiar things and make them unfamiliar. This is going to be one of them, okay? Come to that sermon. You're going to hear about prayer that you never heard before. You're going to go, really? Yeah. It's going to knock your socks off. People of faith. Oh. Foundational. If you want to be partner with God in this mission to the world, you have to trust him. That's, it's kind of like foundational requirement. These three stories, they're about Abraham. And then wisdom. We're going to talk about the story of Joseph. God's people are imbued with God's wisdom. Self-sacrifice is the story of Judah. And um, if you ever wonder why Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah, this will answer for you. And then right before Christmas, we're going to get to the story of Exodus, how God's people is delivered from genocide and oppression and into freedom, and how that is part of the DNA of the people of God. There's Christmas and there's worship where you are, and we come back in the new year with law. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm not kidding. Same thing, okay? When you read the Bible as a story, things you think you know, you no longer know. My hope is that talk will change how you see Old Testament laws forever. Okay? And then story of David, a king after God's own heart, and how that inspires us to be after God. That's what's coming up. I can't wait for these stories. This is, I'm so excited about these stories. Okay? These stories are going to shape who we are as a people of God and help us to be people who are in the world, but not of the world. All right. Let me see if I can pull it together. Genesis 12, verses 1, 2, 3, teach us two things. One, the people of God are a missional people. God calls Abraham to form ancient Israel. Today, God's calling forth a community to be his people, redeemed by Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the mission is as simple or as complicated as it's always been. To live before the world in relationship to God, to know God, to love God, to be known by him and to be loved by him. And the world sees it and they go, that's what I want. The church exists for the sake of the world. We Blackhawk Church, we exist for the sake of Dane County, for Madison, for Middleton, for Verona, for Fitchburg, for Wanakee, for Mount Horeb, for Sun Prairie. I'm going to forget some. I know that, okay? But 
For those of you who are watching and you don't live in Dane County, if you're a Christ follower, you are part of a community that exists for the sake of the community around you, whether you're in the rest of Wisconsin or the rest of the country or the rest of the continent or all over the world. You, all of, all of us, exist for the sake of the world. We live in this world, the mission. And the second thing, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. We live and work and play and love before this world. People know who we are, and they interact with us. And we need to be different so people can go, oh, that's what God's people are about. <laughs> now, I'm going to say something that's probably not said too often in a church. This recipe of being in the world but not of the world, that's a recipe for disaster. It's a recipe for pain. It's a recipe for, 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 for discomfort. Yeah. See, the thing is, the, way, the more we follow Jesus, the more we are now moving toward embracing his values and his, his beliefs and, and, and the beliefs of this, this missional people, the more we become out of sync, out of touch, out of step with our culture, the more we feel like strangers and the more we feel uncomfortable living in this culture, in this society. I'm not sure you heard a pastor say this before, but following Jesus will not make your life easier. It'll make your life harder because it's, what, it's part of what it means to be the people of God. It's built into our DNA in the world, but not of the world. Now, some of you are thinking, whoa, 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 Pastor Charles, um, I'm a Christ follower because I heard this message that I can be reconciled to God, that my, I'm a broken person. God's forgiven me. Right? And then my life is kind of a mess, and I'm asking God to help me to put my life back together. And now, what is all this stuff about saving the world and feeling uncomfortable in our culture? I didn't sign up for that. What's that about? And if you're thinking that way right now, hey, let me just say, I hear you. Okay, I totally get it. And the reality is, we Christ followers, we often hear this good news, this gospel of forgiveness and reconciliation with God. We often hear that. We often hear that the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and helps put the broken pieces back together, bring healing to our lives. Absolutely true, all true. But what we don't often hear is this broader gospel where individual Christ followers, every single one of us, are, are, are incorporated into this missional people to help establish God's reign on earth, to make Jesus truly the king of this dark and broken world. We don't hear that. So here's the thing. When we read the Bible as a story, it changes things, right? If you just read about Jesus and the church, okay. But if you start with Genesis and read it as a story, it changes how you read about Jesus and the church. Genesis begins with human rebellion and the world falling into darkness and brokenness and war and hatred and murder. Genesis 12 says, hey, the people of God are going to help heal that, going to help bless that, help transform that. Genesis 12 establishes that, and now the storyline goes all the way and climaxes in Jesus and the church. What does that mean? It means the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot be just about my relationship with God and being forgiven. It cannot be the Holy Spirit coming to help me put, put together the pieces of my life. It can't be just that. It has to be more. As the proper conclusion to the story, the gospel of Jesus has to be about Jesus pulling together community, empowering them 
to help establish the reign of God in this world. It has to be. That's what happens when you read the Bible as a story. Now, some of you are thinking something entirely different. You were looking at the diagram, and you're like, man, that's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of pressure. You're telling me, Charles, that people are going to choose God or reject God based on how I live my life? That's too much pressure. What if I mess up and they turn away from God? I can't do it. I'm not perfect. And to those of you who are thinking that way, let me say this to you. Keep reading the Bible. Because if you read Genesis 12, you keep reading, you read the story of Abraham, and you realize this guy, wow, this he messed up over and over and over again. And you think, oh, well, maybe he's just growing, right? No, 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 no. He's like this. It doesn't seem to, it's not a trajectory upward. It just kind of, just, he continuously messes up. And you keep reading, you read about Isaac's failures, you read about Jacob, you read about Joseph, you read about Judah. It's like, oh my gosh, the God's people, they mess up constantly. And it becomes very clear through the book of Genesis that God is not wanting perfect people to be his partner. God is not looking for perfect community to be his missional people. Far from it. Let me ask you this. If, you're, if you ever walked into a church where you feel like everybody there is perfect, what would you do? I would run away as fast as I can, and I would never go back. Why? Because perfect people are kind of intimidating. Okay, you, you hang out with them, and, and okay, sometimes they're judgy, but even when they're not, when they don't mean to be judgy, I, mean, I don't even hang out with people like that, even when they don't mean to be judgy, they don't get it. They don't relate. I don't want to talk about my struggles with them because they don't get my struggles. I grew up in a church where people pretended they were perfect. That was the kind of place it was. And I got out of there as fast as I could. As soon as I got old enough, I got out of there. But my high school motto was this. So the lyrics from a, from a Billy Joel song, okay? I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. That was me in high school. That was me in high school. And these people who, who are kind of like perfect, they did not draw me to God. Not one bit. Not one bit. You have to understand this. God's not looking for perfect partners. Not at all. He's looking for people who are willing to live their brokenness before God. People who bring their struggles and brokenness and challenges and, and other people around them, they see that and, and, and we're willing to bring them before God in relationship with God, in a loving relationship with God in which you receive grace and understanding and forgiveness and acceptance and the people around you go, oh, that's who God is. Huh. Maybe, maybe, maybe I can get to know this God as well. God's not looking for perfect people. He's looking for people who are willing to live their brokenness in relationship to God before the world. In the world, but not of the world. I have a few minutes. I'm going to ask you to put into, go into a time of meditation. And I'm going to put some questions on the screen here. And um, there's just a bunch of questions. And, and if you're, just go ahead and read through them right now. Some, some of these questions will, will strike you more than others. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to lead you, to, 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 to move you to a couple of these questions. 
And I want to give you some space right now to close your eyes and talk to God about these questions. And as you're doing that, I'm just going to talk through this a little bit. Right, go ahead and do that right now. And for some of you, you've made a decision to follow Jesus, but what you accept is the gospel forgiveness, right relationship with God, and that's awesome. Today, I'd like to invite you to consider embracing the mission. And for those of you who have embraced the mission, how's that going? In what ways are you spending your time, your energy, your creativity, your resources? How are you doing being a missional Christ follower? And some of you listening right now, you're like, man, there's no way I can tell people I'm a Christ follower. My, my workplace does not allow it. My family, there's no way I'll be disowned. You're in difficult situations. So, look, things we say here, it, it doesn't apply to everybody's situation. So talk to God about this. Struggle with God about this, about how to live your life before others as a Christ follower. And some of you, the last group of questions are, is attracting your attention because you're going with the flow. You're going with your friends. You're going with whatever is in the culture, and you're not thinking about how the biblical values are different from the values of our society. Talk to God about that. Father, we thank you for revealing your plan. I think we are, many of us, a little bit intimidated by it, that you partner with us. You want us to play such a core, key role in what you're doing in this world. And, and we are honored and daunted. But we're grateful because you do not leave us alone. You do just give this to us. No, you do it with us, alongside us, in us, with us. You have the, your Holy Spirit powering us to be part of this mission. So we thank you for the high calling. We have a lot of fears and anxiety about it. And we submit all that before you. And all God's people said, amen.